This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome. My name is Kevin Sheehan, and I'm the children's pastor here at Church of the Resurrection. But before I was a pastor, I spent about 12 years working in IT. And one of the things I learned early on working in IT support was that when someone comes to you with a technology problem, there's the problem, the symptom that they come with, and then there's the actual cause or the root cause of that problem. And sometimes you can spend a lot of time on these symptoms if you're not able to get to that root cause. So a client might call and say, I'm having all kinds of weird problems today. My email isn't working. I can't print to the network printer. I get this message on my screen that says, unable to connect to something or other. Can you help me? And the job of a good technician is to listen to these three problems and say, ah, here's the root problem. Your Wi-Fi is turned off. We want to get down to the root cause of our problems. That's true with our technology. It's also true in medicine. It's true in all of our lives. This is our fourth Sunday in a series on the book of Jeremiah. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been addressing the problem of idols. You may recall Father Matt's teaching a couple of weeks ago in which he explained that idolatry is essentially a God swap. We take something that is bad or or maybe even a good thing and we make it the ultimate thing in our lives. Then last week, Father Steve helped us understand the way in which idols can rob us of the good things that God wants for us. They're like weeds in a garden, he said. But sometimes what can happen is that we're painfully aware of the idols that are in our lives and and we try to, to do better, to be better. But as soon as we get rid of one idol, another one crops up in its place. You've been watching too much Netflix, you're concerned that that's been an idol in your life, and so you cut off your subscription, only to find that now you're obsessing over the news. Or perhaps you've been idolizing a romantic relationship, and you think, once I get married, that'll be taken care of, only to be replaced by idolizing financial security or raising the perfect children, or whatever it is that we're dealing with. What can happen is that we spend so much effort dealing with different idols in our lives, but we don't get to the root cause. We don't get to the heart of the matter. Today, we'll be looking at Jeremiah chapter 7. So if you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to go get one uh, from your shelf at home or under your seat. And go ahead and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 17. The prophet Jeremiah is addressing the nation of Judah, which has fallen into the worship of false gods. And he tells us that Judah's idolatry problem wasn't just about their altars. That was a symptom. It was about their hearts. Take a look at verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. Later on in verse 9, he's going to say, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
For Judah and for us, the idols were a symptom of a heart problem. At the root of our idolatry is a sickness in our hearts. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking, we tend to associate the heart with emotions, but the Bible is talking about our, our whole internal life, our desires, our will, our inner thoughts. Our heart is the hidden part of our life that can't be seen. It's our root system, if you will. And our individual idols are symptomatic of what is happening in our hearts. Now, to help us understand the situation of our hearts, God, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, paints a word picture of two plants, each of which are dealing with a very different situation under the soil. These two plants that we're going to read about in in Jeremiah 17 represent two people with two very different ways of living and two very different heart conditions. As we explore this word picture, here's the spiritual principle that we're going to unpack. The fruit of our life grows from what is at the root of our life. I'm going to repeat that. The fruit of our life grows from what is at the root of our life. So let's look at these two plants in the passage and see what they have to teach us. Look with me at verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited land. The first plant is a pathetic, good-for-nothing shrub in the wilderness. It's probably one bad heat wave away from being kindling. We're told that this shrub represents a person. It says man here, but that could be talking about a man or a woman. A person who relies on human strength. That's what we mean when we talk about flesh often in the Bible. Human strength or human capacity. This could be a reliance on humanity in general. It could be a reliance on specific people. Or as is often the case in our modern context, it could be a reliance on ourselves and our own strength. Now you might say, Kevin, wait a minute. Are you saying that self-reliance is bad? Am I just supposed to be passive, to be helpless, to just let life happen to me? And I'd say, well, it depends on what you mean by self-reliance, I suppose. Because if you mean agency, well, that's a good thing. God has given us resources that he invites us to use as we manage our lives. He invites us to be active in the world that he created. But if by self-reliance you mean that we try to maintain control over everything in our lives and we depend primarily on our own resources, that is a recipe for idolatry. Let's think about the history of idol worship in Israel. In the book of Exodus, God definitively showed his power and his mercy. He showed that he was the loving God of Israel who who delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea. 
And then when they get out to the wilderness, he, he calls Moses up to a mountain where he gives him the law. And while Moses is there, he, he's gone for a long time. The people haven't seen him for over a month and they start to get skittish. What is God doing? He's acting in a way that, that they didn't expect. Where's Moses? If we don't have Moses, what do we have? They felt uncomfortable with a God they couldn't see and couldn't control. So they took matters into their own hands. And they asked Aaron to make an image for them in the form of a calf out of gold to be their God. Last week, Matt Prechter, one of our ResKid storytellers, explained to the kids why God told his people not to make an image of him. And this is what he said. I love the way he put it. Once you've made an image of God, you have God on your own terms. You can make him out of wood. You can make him out of stone. You can make him out of gold, out of silver, out of whatever it is that you want. And that is precisely what we cannot do with God. We cannot make him whatever we want. But that is the project at the heart of idolatry. Faced with circumstances outside of our control, we try to regain a measure of control by setting up God on our own terms. In ancient Israel and Judah, which was uh, primarily an agrarian society, your, your fortunes could rise or fall based on how much rain you got that year. And of course, this is going to make people feel vulnerable because I can't control the weather. What happens if I don't get enough rain? What if it's not enough to trust God? So people took matters into their own hands. They began to worship a god named Baal, who was a popular god in the region because he was believed to have some influence over the weather. Now, in modern America, we've moved on from this sort of overt form of idol building that we see in the Old Testament. And, and when I read about people making idols in the Old Testament, it seems so foreign to my experience. Could you imagine talking to your neighbor about house projects and he says, yeah, I've got this, this extra lumber out back, so I think I'm going to build a household god this weekend. Wow, that's quite a project. I don't think I will ever be handy enough to build a, a god. And he says, no, you totally can. Ikea has these kits. All you need is a screwdriver and about 160 pages of instructions. And they've got these Swedish names like Thor and Odin. Or is that the bookshelf? You, you get my point. This is ludicrous to us. The idea of building gods is, is so far outside of our experience. Uh, but we still look for ways to deal with the things that are outside of our control. And those are the things that become our idols. We don't look to Baal to give us a sense of control and security. We have money or influence. And if we can't control our circumstances, we can drown them out with entertainment or substances. For a time, these things may give us a sense of control over our lives. They may even seem to nourish us for a time. But if we rely on them, they become our gods and they will devastate us. They'll be like salt in our root system. This sickness of control that is in our hearts began at the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve decided that they were in a position to choose what was best for themselves. 
And when we choose to trust our own wisdom and our own strength more than God, we end up with an idolatry problem. That is the, the idols are the symptom of that sickness. We abandon God as the source of our strength and we rely on our own resources. This is what Jeremiah means when he says, the person who makes flesh his strength. So let's go back to the plant analogy. What happens, some of you are gardeners, what happens to a plant if it relies only on its own resources? What happens if it has no source of good water at its roots? It's the same thing that happened to some of your plants when you went on vacation. It withers and eventually dies. It might get by for a while. Even a desert plant blooms when it gets a little rain. When circumstances are right, it might seem like we are effectively running our own lives. But when the money dries up, when the relationship sours, when our health takes a turn for the worse, what do we have left? The fruit of our life grows from what is at the root of our life. And if our roots are drawing on nothing but our own resources, we're going to see our lives shrivel into insignificance. We're going to be consumed by our own self-reliance, our own idolatry. And what's more, our lives will be fruitless. We'll be able to produce nothing that is glorifying to God or helpful to others. See, when we find our ultimate purpose and our ultimate source of strength in ourselves, the result is a life that is turned inward. The result is a life that exists to survive. God wants so much more for you than that. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Jesus loves you so much. He didn't design you to be a withering shrub. He designed you to be a fruitful tree. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. It says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The second plant in the passage is a tree with solid roots and green leaves, and it's constantly bearing fruit. This tree with its deep roots and the shrub in the wilderness both face similar circumstances. They both have heat waves. They both may face seasons of drought, but there's something different about their hidden life. At the surface, things may look the same, but there's something different going on under the soil, something happening at their roots, or rather in their hearts. The tree planted by the water is drawing from a source outside of itself. And not just any source. The Bible tells us about a time when Jesus had a conversation with a woman 
at a well who'd had a series of failed marriages. Time and again, she'd been disappointed by a man in her life. I'd be willing to bet that by necessity, this woman learned to rely on herself because who else could she rely on not to let her down? But Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks from the water of this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus invited this woman to trust him. He invited this woman to trade her self-reliance for reliance on him. He invited her to give up life as a shrub in the wilderness and to reach her roots toward his living water. And he makes that same invitation to us. When we have the living water of Jesus at our roots, we can face circumstances that should cause us to give up hope and wither. As I was reflecting on this, I was reminded of a Chicagoan by the name of Horatio Spafford. He was a successful lawyer who had heavily invested in Chicago real estate right before the great Chicago fire of 1871. Two years later, his family was scheduled to go on vacation in England, but he was still trying to rebuild and and there'd been an economic downturn and he needed a a little more time to wrap up business in Chicago before before he went to join his family. So he sent them on ahead, his wife and his four daughters. But the ship that they were on had a collision with another ship, and and it sank. He received a telegram from his wife, Anna, that said simply, saved alone. All four of his daughters had drowned. Sorry, as a father of daughters, that, that gets me. I cannot imagine the depth of loss that Horatio was feeling as he got on that boat to join his wife in England to grieve with her. But it was on that voyage that he wrote these words that have ministered to me and to many others during times of grief. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Those words are not the fruit of optimism. They're not the fruit of grit and hard work and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. They're the fruit of a tree whose roots are reaching desperately toward the living water of Jesus. Not only was he able to carry on in tragedy, but he found a way to glorify God in that tragedy and minister to the hearts of countless grieving people ever since. The tree whose roots reach toward the river receives what it needs not only to survive, but also to bless others, to bear fruit, A life that relies on Jesus produces the fruit of good works, of love, of justice. 
I'm aware that we can have other motivations besides Jesus to do good in the world. Motivations like emotional investment, a desire to make a difference, image improvement, vengeance, the desire for a legacy, peer pressure, guilt, I can go on. There are lots of reasons to do good. But that is not the way to lasting fruit. In fact, that could exacerbate our idolatry problem if we buy in to those other motivations for doing good. Our good works and our compassion and our activism may sometimes look the same on the surface. That is a person relying on Jesus and a person relying on themselves. It may look the same on the surface, but we're not doing exactly the same work. For one thing, we have a different starting point. Recently, we recorded a conversation between Bishop Stewart, uh, Father William Beasley, and Pastor Michael Wright. I encourage you to find it uh, online if you haven't seen it yet. It's called Jesus, Justice, and Revival. And I was deeply moved as Pastor Wright, who's African-American, described the way in which our black brothers and sisters have had their painful experiences largely overlooked by predominantly white churches. But as he began to challenge us to action, he said this. He said, God doesn't skip steps. It's Jesus, then justice. As Christians, we care deeply about justice. But Jesus has to be at the root of our justice efforts. As we seek to do our part to resist systemic evil, we dare not start with human strength. We dare not start with human systems and human ideologies lest our justice efforts shrivel like a shrub in the wilderness. We care about racial reconciliation because we believe that Jesus has one church with a capital C. We care about racial justice because we believe that black and brown people are created in the image of God. That's also, by the way, why we care about the lives of the unborn and elderly people and people with disabilities because they have the dignity of the, hum- of the image of God. We do good work, we do good fruit out of the overflow of our reliance on Jesus. And I-, I want to be the kind of person who is fruitful in 2020, even in the desert of 2020. But I can't start with a self-improvement regimen. Trust me, I've tried. I can't do it by implementing just the right system or trying to perfectly control my life circumstances. I think one of the side effects of 2020 is we've discovered how little control over our lives we actually have. For some of us, COVID has stripped away things that we've come to rely on and and maybe even uncovered some of our idols. So what do we do? How can we make sure that we are drawing on Jesus's living water Well, on one hand, any spiritual growth has to be God's work. That was the prayer we prayed at the beginning. We can do nothing apart from God's grace. I've just been talking about how we don't have resources in ourselves to bear fruit, but that doesn't mean that we are passive in the process. As our bishop likes to say, God does everything and we do something. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has ultimately dealt with your sin problem on the cross. 
He has plunged you into the font of his living water. This is all God's work. But he has also given us resources and practices that can train our roots to draw on his living water. We call these spiritual disciplines, things like meditating on scripture, fasting, confession and repentance, generosity, gathering with God's people. You could have a whole sermon series on this, and I think we have in the past. And also, if you're interested in, in deep diving into more of this, I encourage you to check, up, check out Deacon Val's Transformation Intensive. That was very helpful for me. But for our purposes today, I just want to give you two simple phrases that are a good place to start as you are seeking to train the roots of your heart. And I'm a children's pastor, so I'm going to keep them simple. I know you'll remember them because they're the same phrases your parents and teachers taught you when you were little. Please... And thank you. Yes, I am talking about prayer. It's so obvious we could miss it. But every time we ask God for help, for provision, for healing, for justice, for whatever it is that we're asking him for, we are not only asking for something we need, though we are doing that. We are also declaring our trust that God is the source of our strength. God knows what we need, right? I've sometimes wondered about the mystery of prayer. Why do I need to pray? God knows what I need. But we still need to make those requests anyway, lest we default to trusting in ourselves. This is why we ask God to give us our daily bread. It's not a substitute for hard work. If we, if we ask God for our daily bread, we also work for our daily bread to the extent that we're able. If we pray for justice, we also work for justice. But even as we are working, we still ask God for it because we know that he is the source of every good thing that we have and every good thing that we could possibly do. That's also part of why we fast. It's a way to engage our bodies in the conviction that we need God more even than we need food. You can think of it as a way of saying please with our bodies. Which brings us to thank you. The flip side of please. Gratitude to God, it amazes me, is one of the best defenses against idolatry. Without it, we're tempted to take the good gifts that God has given us that we've received from the Lord and to make them out to be our own accomplishments perhaps even feeding our idolatry. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1, talking about idolatry, uh, said that, that because people didn't glorify God and give thanks to him, their hearts were darkened. When we thank God for food at mealtimes, it's not just a nice ritual. It's an anti-idolatry measure. Every time we say thank you to God, we are saying, you are the source of my strength. You are the source of my success. You are the source of my provision. That's why the feast at the heart of our service is called the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is central to the Christian life. Showing gratitude is one of those things that is so easy to do as long as you're paying attention. And so as you seek to grow in gratitude, I want to encourage you to to come up with a plan. Perhaps you're a journaler and you can write down the things in your life that you're thankful for, that, that God has done for you. Maybe you just need to to set aside a little bit of time at the end of your day 
to, to reflect on those gifts and to say thank you to God. Whatever it takes, please find a way to cultivate gratitude in your life. You won't regret it. The fruit of our lives will grow from what is at the root of our lives. How would you describe your life right now? Are you a shrub or a tree? What is at the root of your life? Where does your heart reach when you are in need of strength? Is it your own competence? Another person's competence? Is it an ideology or a political party? Is it technology? Do you find it easy to find things to thank God for? Or do you need to cultivate those roots? I want to invite you to join me in a prayer of please and thank you. And as you, as you close your eyes, it may be that you'd like to reach out your hands to the Lord as if they're your roots drawing on his living water. Lord, we need you to draw our hearts to you. We need your strength. We need your wisdom. We need you to free us from our desire to control. Lord, we need you to empower our good works. We need you to empower our advocacy and empower our relationships. We need you, Lord. Please fill us. Thank you for your constant provision that you've saved us, that you've made us part of your family, that you love us. Lord, uproot those things in our heart that are not from you. Turn our hearts to your love. May they ever be fixed on you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As a part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.